it was always part of the plan to put a brewery in, but for many years it, it was just a plan. It's 100% acquisition of Green Beacon. No, we had a chat with everybody. Anyone would have seen this coming a mile away. It's the passion and the, the dedication to beer and brewing. Oh, yeah. That's super simple and direct question. It's always fun to get to speak about beer. Hi, I'm Brews News Editor Matt Kirkegaard, and that's just what we're here to do, talk about beer and the brewing industry, and have a conversation with the people who make the industry what it is, and see what we can learn from them. And this week, we have a lot to learn, not just about beer, but also about potato crisps, as we meet brewing quality consultant, Claire Clouting. Until recently, Claire was with Good Drinks Australia, where she had worked as quality assurance manager and operations system manager. Recently, she founded Athena Business Solutions with the aim of assisting food and beverage businesses to produce safe, high-quality and compliant products through education and easy-to-use tools, as well as food safety coaching and consulting. We've had Claire on the Brewery Pro podcast a number of times, and I highly recommend you go back and listen to them if you have an interest in brewing quality and seeing more of Claire's expertise. But we begin this conversation, Claire's first conversation with us, learning a bit about Claire and how she came to work in quality, coming to beer via Frito-Lay, which is where the potato crisps come in, including learning what is the lager of potato chips. Claire Clouting, welcome to Beer is a Conversation. Thanks for having me. Now, I'm sure regular listeners of ours who have heard you on our various uh, professional podcasts, we've, we've spoken to you a number of times about beer quality, so they'll recognise your voice. But this one, we're, uh, it, it's a beer as a conversation. So I'm going to start with the you know, fairly standard conversation starter. Who is Claire Clouting? That's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I've been in, in brewing for quite a while now, coming up to my sort of seventh year. Um, but prior to that, I spent a long time in the food industry. So I've got about 20 years experience in quality and food safety. Um, I've worked with all sorts of products, from yogurts and quiches, potato chips, curry sauces, pickles, and um, back in 2016, I found myself at a sort of a employment crossroads, and I said to myself, like, Claire, what do you really want to work with? And it was cheese or beer, <laughs> and then, uh, but beer won out. Maybe I'll get the cheese done down the track, who knows? <laughs> well, um, let's wind, wind back all the way to, to, to the start, because clearly from your accent, you're not from around here um, originally, um, so, so at some point you've decided to come, but even before then, you decided to get into food technology and quality. So do I take it you come from a science background originally? Yes. Yeah, that's right. So um, I am working on my Aussie accent. It's just not going very well. I've been here 15 years. Um, I've actually got two kids that I've had um, here in Australia. One's got an English accent and one's got an Australian accent. So <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, so I come from, it's a food science background. And I originally went to university to do food science, nutrition and health because I thought I wanted to be a nutritionalist. And the agricultural college where I did my first year of uni had this amazing food processing facility. I had like freeze dryers, Tetra Pak. Uh, we made cider and beer, made cheese, and um, straight away I just fell in love with it. So I very quickly pivoted to the food science side of things, and um, I've not looked back. I've loved it. There's not ever really been a period where I've not enjoyed going to work. What was it about 
the 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 food that food processing element that came from your your, your obviously an an affinity with science and affinity with food. But what was it about the manufacturing process side of things that really fired your imagination? Um, I think well, I'm a farmer's girl. Um, both my parents were farmers, so. I suppose um, I've grown up at right at the sort of base level where we were producing grain and livestock for meat, all sorts of things like that. And I, and I love cooking as well. And so I think I've just always really enjoyed finding out how things are made and getting into the nuts and bolts of it. Um, and so, yeah, it kind of went from there, really. And um, one thing I you know, and I still continue to love is when I go and visit uh, raw material suppliers, glass manufacturers like I love seeing how stuff is made um it it never ceases to amaze me you know different production techniques you never considered going into you know following the family footsteps into farming (laughs) yeah I think my dad would have liked that (laughs) (laughs) no there's too many early mornings (laughs) I'm not really a morning person so which I, I guess in brewing, unless you're a brewer, you can uh, do a lot of the testing and things you do at any time of the day. Well, that's it, yeah. So, um, you know, it's um, I, I, I will get up, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, not at the ridiculous farming hours. So, but you, you move from food technology to quality assurance and uh, move to Australia as quality manager for PepsiCo. Um, which is an interesting move. I mean, uh, soft drink, I, I, I have to be very careful how I phrase this because on one hand, beer is made in a factory, but it still has much more of a romantic story uh, than I guess soft drink manufacturer does. Yeah, well, actually, um, and I did have a little, um, you know, I did come into contact a little bit with soft drinks, but the division for PepsiCo, I... Um, work for was the Fritillet, the chip side, ah. because they actually own quite a few businesses. They own Quaker Oats as well. And I, I did do some work with oats too, which was really interesting. Um, so it did allow me actually a bit of contact with farmers because we dealt with a lot of potato um, farmers. And um, it was interesting actually, because it, it seems like a very simple product, but there's quite a lot to frying a potato. And um, they've even got like a university in Texas that you go, you know, various people go to to learn the technique of making a perfect chip so <laughs> i was actually going to say because potatoes uh, the, the the very limited experience i've had in looking into potato chips is it is because our expectations for a chip you know they they need to be robust enough not to break so there's a packaging issue and then also a chip but then also frying them evenly so there's not burnt bits and uh you know everything that goes in to make chips the thing that we happily take from a packet is actually incredibly uh, complicated oh yeah it is it's crazy complicated even down to how much peel you remove because that has a massive impact on how much oil gets soaked up and the fryers are actually quite complex and um the interesting thing about pe- um, the PepsiCo or the Fritillet thing is they have a, a mantra of every bag, every bite. So it's a bit like the, you know, the Big Mac theory. So you should be able to have a bag of their chips anywhere in the world and they should taste exactly the same. And so they have quite a strict standard of how everything should be done. 
you know, so every every chip does taste the same. But I have to say Australian chips are the gold standard because the potatoes here are actually some of the best in the world. So um, For that style of crisp? Yeah, and I'll, I'll call them crisp the English. Uh, so, for, for, so for that <laughs> style of crisp, because, again, my partner is Irish and she decries our ability to get good potatoes for things like roast potatoes or other types of chip, but you, you think that our potatoes are top-notch for potato crisps? Yeah, for potato chips, I actually, I'm sorry, I'm probably going talking way too much potato. Not at all, no. um, It's quite interesting. So um, Fritillet actually have their own um, breeds of potatoes as well that, you know, they've kind of bred over the years, a bit like hops, I guess, you know, looking for the perfect um, outcome. And so they have like their perfect potato chips, which you can't, you know, sell or use for anything else. And um, the other sort of interesting chip fact is that Aussie chips tend to be like a very pale golden colour, whereas they're quite yellowy in the rest of the world. And so, um, yeah, so largely Australian chips are sort of seen as the gold standard, like the best of the best. That's interesting. But again, now I'm quite happy to go down the uh, talking about chips because there are parallels with beer. And one of the ones that I was looking at um, when you were talking before is on one hand, um, you know, every, every packet, every bite should be the same around the world, which is a miracle of food technology and food science and food processing. But the flip side of that is I find that it's a little bit sad that travel doesn't give you the experience of, you know, different, you know, of, of having those differences in the everyday things that, that, that we have um, to, to quite the same extent as it once did. And, you know, I, I even remember going from Queensland to New South Wales or Victoria on holidays in, in the 70s. Every state had its own milk processor. So the chocolate milk all tasted a little bit different. And it was just part of the you know, it, it, it's, it's funny to say that, but it was part of the joy of travel that the everyday things still provide an, an experience. Yeah. Oh, look, I, I can completely um, understand that. And um, I suppose my way of looking at it from a snack perspective, because I'm still quite a bit of a chip nerd, is is the flavours, you know. So, you know, the salted chip. I always like to buy a bag of salted chips because I just like to see whether it, there is every bag, every bite, you know, and it, it does taste the same. But there's some fantastic flavours all around the world. And um, for the nine years that I was there, I constantly tried to get them to bring prawn cocktail over <laughs> from the UK. But apparently that sort of thing's not going to go over well with Aussies. They don't they don't quite grasp what the prawn cocktail flavour profile would be. You know, oh, they I, thought it'd be fishy. Well, I was, I was going to say, well, the prawn cocktail would have the, 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 the cocktail sauce, which would be one of the dominant flavours, I'd guess. And then... You know, yep. I, I, I can almost see it like a prawn cracker, you know, those Asian prawn cracker flavours yep. with uh, a, uh, you know, the, the cocktail sauce, which what is, um, it, it's got some Worcestershire sauce. Uh, I'm trying to think of, yep. I haven't made Mayo, it Mayo, tomato sauce, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's really popular in the UK and um, I hopefully, like I haven't given up trying to get it over here. <laughs> but, but I, I'm, I'm fascinated. So you, you said the salted chips are almost a benchmark. So salted chips are the uh, mainstream lager of the chip world in that it gives you a really good example. You know, if you have a Heineken in Australia, the brewed in Australia versus England versus uh, America, they should all taste the same. A salted chip is theoretically that same level of benchmark. 
Yeah, absolutely. I love that. That's a really good analogy. That's exa- that's exactly it. <laughs> <laughs> See, we can always bring it back to beer. Yeah. <laughs> So what did you learn from that then? Because again, I I do see immediately a whole lot of parallels with quality assurance in the brewing industry. Um, And, you know, what what did you learn working for Frito-Lay and having that approach? And uh, as a big company, people's expectations for consistency would be incredibly high. Yeah, actually, um, there are loads of parallels, and particularly in my later years um, at Gage Roads, like it's um, single fin is a fantastic example of where you know I sort of lent on my experience with um, Fritillet because the more and more um, single fin that we sold, and it was becoming people's regular weekly carton. You know, when I first started there, you know, I would talk to friends, and they they might not have heard of it, and then. By the end of my time at Gage, it would be not unusual for me to walk out of the supermarket and see people with a whole carton in the trolley wandering around. So, And we did start getting more feedback from consumers who would be very susceptible to any changes, for example, um, because they would be just consuming it so regularly. They'd be like, this batch is this or this batch is that. So it, it definitely became something we had to be more mindful about with consistency um, because people learnt the product so well. And I expect Stone and Wood have exactly the same thing with their um, Pacific Ale. People come to know a product really well and they notice, you know, small and minor differences. And I have to say consistency and getting consistency in beer is so much harder than potato chips even because there's just so many variables, you know, that go into it. And you get a lot of like seasonal variation with hops. Um, obviously yeast, you know, that can, that can have quite a bit of variation depending on a few factors. And, um, yeah, even, even tank to tank variation, you know, is a bit of a challenge. So it's, um, it definitely kept me busy. And, um, and it's been very good as well for my learning curve in the industry, sort of learning about beer from that perspective. And, and that's fascinating because I, I think, you know, in the 20 odd years I've been writing about the industry, I remember, you know, being really impacted, you know, I think the craft brewers, the craft beer lovers journey, you know, is, is, is a um, parabolic one, you know, you start off become more and more interested in challenging flavors and you know the the, the passion um and I, I i can't remember who it was but it was one of the very influential beer writers 20 years ago uh said you know consistency shouldn't be the god of craft brewing um and that was when craft brewing was all about you know uh, art more than science and um, you know, I, I, I think at those in those days it was a very, very you know noble sentiment to have, forgetting, of course, the, the the passion that the beer drinker has diminishes the further away you get from you know that central view of of craft. Um, you know, it, it it's almost uh, what what is it? Sound it, um, gets quieter by the inverse square, Lord. Interest in the you know, the, the the inside techniques of brewing is probably the same. It diminishes by the inverse square further and further away until you just get the consumer who just wants a beer that is, if they like it, they don't care where it's made, they don't care who makes it, they don't care the hop variety, so long as it is the same um, and it represents the same thing to them time after time. And they're two different audiences 
Um, and we've seen increasingly that audience that doesn't care that that consistency matters more to uh, become more and more important to brewers as they grow. That's it. And, I, you know, I, I think there's room for both of those things to exist mm. in the industry. I don't think they're mutually exclusive. And I think it, people have a regular beer that they might have. It might be, you know, their weekday beer. And, and then I think those same people often do, you know, reach out and try limiteds and they're interested in that perspective. But I, and I'm going to say this as a quality person, so it's probably not going to be surprising, but <laughs> I think you've always got to come back to the consumer because, and, you know, this is the most expensive product that I've worked with. You know, if someone lays out money on beer, they forked out usually, you know, more than 20 bucks, mm. not like a, buying a bag of chips, you know, for, for <laughs> five bucks or whatever. And so you, you cannot disappoint. You know, regardless of what the offering is, whether it's the consistent every everyday beer or the limited edition, like you, you just cannot disappoint the consumer. Um, and I, I think a lot of what I learned at PepsiCo as well that I've tried to transfer into this industry is about brand loyalty and almost converting people into being a brand advocate. Because regardless of whether it's a limited or a regular beer, if you can give that consumer, you know, fantastic experience every single time or, you know, more often than not, you will convert people to being brand loyal and, and then eventually brand advocates, you know, mm. and that's the ideal scenario. You want people to be shouting about your beer, taking photos of it on socials, telling their mates how nice it is. I know when I really like something, I buy my friends a six pack because I want them to love it too. It's the affirmation that comes with people liking what you like. Exactly, yeah. Actually, converting my friends to craft beer has been, you know, one of my single biggest joys, you know, outside <laughs> of having kids. So, um, yeah, so I think it's, um, I think they're not, they're not mutually exclusive. I think, I think there's a little bit of hand in hand there. And of course, I, I, going back, I should say that the, the batch to batch variation should never be because of quality control reasons. It should be because of <laughs> the, the 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 craft of brewing as opposed to mistakes in brewing. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and that's why I love like single hot beers and stuff are great from that perspective because, you know, even, you know, batch to batch differences, they give us an opportunity to appreciate the craft, you know, and there's definitely a place for that. I, I, I guess the other thing I uh, wonder about there is, you know, I, I, I think of some of the loudest um, consumers in craft beer are some of the most passionate, um, you know, the, the people who participate in Facebook forums and things like that. And I'm trying to actually think, you know, on, on one hand, we tell ourselves that those who are very meshed in um, the, the, the craft beer world and the knowledge about breweries and brewers and ingredients um, will be more understanding of variation in, in, in beer. But as I think about it, I can't actually hear to think of too many Facebook threads where people have gone, oh, isn't this batch of X breweries, um, you know, annual release, uh, awesome because it's different because the hops were grown in a drier, you know, growing conditions this year. It generally comes out, it's shit, it's different. Um, they've dumbed it down or, you know, they're, they're, they're cutting corners or when there are variations in beer flavors, it, it, the, the enthusiast tends to attribute it to the brewery has done something for nefarious reasons uh, when, when I think about it. Yeah, I, 
I think that's the other thing that I've learned about, you know, this industry and how it's very different from food is it has some of the most passionate, um, sometimes difficult to please fans. Um, you know, and I, th- I think it's a double-edged sword because you want people to be that passionate about your product. They're as passionate as the people that are making it. But also, you know, it also is a double-edged sword in that um, it's a lot easier to disappoint them. And they're quite vocal about it. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and that's what I was saying. And, you know, I, I, I don't think they often attribute positive reasons for any dis- change or disappointment. They don't celebrate the difference when they're disappointed. It's always a, a negative reason. So, um, but, but we might come back to quality a little bit more. We, we might pick up, you'd, you'd said that whole variation was when you said that uh, when you're looking around, it was going to be beer or cheese. Um, what made you choose, was it that you got a job in beer before you got a job in cheese or what was the uh, determinant for you? Um, well, yeah, a, a job came up in beer first um so you know I think it was just a a bit of a timing thing and unfortunately I don't think there's nearly enough cheese made in WA as there should be (laughs) um (laughs) and cheese in Australia has been a bit of a contentious issue for me since I um, moved here but it's definitely getting better for a long time when I first moved here you couldn't buy unpasteurized cheese and that was quite upsetting. Can you now? There are a small number of past. Will Stud championed um, pasteurized cheese imports, and I actually, oh, I'd, if 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 we weren't five thousand kilometres away, I would get you some. Um, I recently had a very very nice unpasteurized eighteen month cave age cheddar um, from the UK. So it was because they they can bring it in if it's over a certain age and below a certain moisture. Um, I understand. Um, you, you can correct me if I'm wrong there. I think they've applied a bit more what I would call common sense to the rules. Uh, I think not long after I moved here, there was a guy that had got caught in Melbourne for bringing some gorgonzola over and um, they made him destroy it. So he held like a funeral. That was for Will it. Stud. <laughs> that, that, that's what, yeah, he's, he's um, one of, like, he, he's got cheese slices, which is the SBS short shows that you see about cheese on SBS uh, every now and then. Um, And he's a big importer of the most amazing French and English uh, uh, British cheeses. So, um, yeah, and he's been a huge campaigner for bringing in um, unpasteurized cheeses. Yeah, it's it's definitely a positive thing. I think it's like with anything in the food industry, you know, if you apply common sense, um, you know, everything can be done safely within reason. It's, it's just hard sometimes when people are creating, like, legislation. You know, they just go too broad. And that, that happens in all sorts of, um, oh, I'm sure you're aware, you know, it happens in all sorts of instances in the food industry. Which is one of the reasons why I uh, am so vocal about saying that businesses need to police themselves because if they don't, that's when government comes in and they inevitably fuck it up. Uh, yeah. Because they can't, because they, they, they have to legislate for the lowest common denominator not the highest um and which is the nature of legislation so absolutely uh, i mean that's that's drives a lot of like um what i do and my goals because i i do foresee that you know if you if you can manage your own requirements as an industry that's always going to be way better off than being dragged there and and made to you know heal is because yeah it'll always be lowest common denominator this isn't a uh, conversation about uh, legislation. It's a conversation about <laughs> you and quality. 
I, I, I hear what you're saying about cheese in Australia. Um, and there's a whole lot of reasons for that. And, uh, you know, again, we could disappear down the rabbit hole of uh, the, the way that the dairy industry has been destroyed um, in a lot of ways and what that's meant for the cheese. But we won't. We'll talk about beer. So your, your first job was with good drinks. So what I should ask, what brought you to Australia that um, initially? Um, my husband and I were backpackers. It's a classic backpacker tale. Um, we backpacked for a year. Uh, we had a 1985 Toyota Corolla station wagon. We drove the entirety <laughs> of, of um, Australia. Um, when we pulled back up to the Victoria Markets in Melbourne, um, approximately 11 months later, and asked the guy for the 50% back we were promised if we returned the car, I thought it was going to fall over. Um, <laughs> and we, we just loved it. And we did go back to the UK for about three and a half years, but I just didn't settle. I missed it. I knew this is where I wanted to be. And so um, shortly after we got married, we moved over here and haven't looked back at home now. I've spent more time as an adult in Australia now than I did in the UK. So despite the <laughs> accent, I actually feel very Australian. <laughs> you develop your accent in your most formative years, and that's where we get imprinted. So it's uh, there was no criticism about the, uh, the accent. I was just commenting on it. Um, what made you choose Perth? Um, we, well, our top two, I don't want to offend anybody here, but our top two favourite states was the Northern Territory, but we were not going to live there. Um, because, and, and because, you know, I just wouldn't have found work. And then we loved Western Australia. It's probably the state we spent the most time in. I think being a rural girl, I'm not really a city person. I felt like Perth had the best of both worlds and we love Margaret River. We picked grapes down there for a while. Um, and so it just came naturally and the, and the job at Fritillet came up, uh, PepsiCo and, and so it just all sort of fell quite nicely together. And, um, yeah, we, we love it here. So what was it about beer, um, you know, beer and cheese, but clearly you've settled in beer. Um, what was it about beer that sort of lured you or, or had, had an attraction over um, being a chip connoisseur? Well, my first love of beer started with, you know, Cascale. Um, I grew up in like a medieval sort of market town area of the UK and we had quite a few free houses, which are becoming more and more rare now in the UK. It's actually really depressing. But, um, yeah, got used to drinking, like, pump ale, or, you know, lots of limiteds. And very early in my food science course, we visited a brewery. And, um, I mean, it was pretty scary now looking back. Like, it wasn't the cleanest environment. <laughs> <laughs> Open tanks and all, all sorts. But, um, yeah, so I think I just loved the variation of it and enjoyed those multi-flavours. And when I moved to Australia, it was actually quite challenging sort of getting used to, I guess, more of what I would have said, the American styles, more hoppy, hop-driven styles. I love them now. And don't get me wrong, I still love Cascale, but I've definitely more moved across to um, more of the IPAs and uh, more of the hop-driven types of beers. Do you get home often? Oh, sorry, when I say home, do you get back to your original home often? Not very much. I was supposed to go in 2020 and... Um, I actually had quite a few breweries planned out to visit, including Hook Norton and a few, but um, COVID put, put pays to that. And um, no, I just, I haven't. Um, any overseas travel I've done has been, you know, Germany and um, USA. I, I sh probably should go back. We call it a tour of duty. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm probably overdue for a visit. So, so 
you, you did spend almost seven years uh, with Gage until earlier this year when you uh, left to set up your own uh, consulting. We'll, we'll, we'll come to that. But what were the... What did you learn from Frito-Lay that you brought to your um, brewing industry experience? Um, I think the big thing was uh, is engagement. So, you know, I think a lot of people focus on, you know, policies, procedures and all of those sorts of things. But I think at the base of quality is is about commitment by the company and support from the leadership down and then engagement um, throughout the entire um, team all the way down to the front line. Um, and that's something that PepsiCo are really good at. And they, they do that in a number of ways. Um, they do it through reward and recognition, good communication. So everybody knows how the business is doing, regardless of level. And, um, and that's something I think we achieve really well at Good Drinks. So, you know, we have really good management commitment. You know, there's not actually that many breweries who actually employ a quality manager or, you know, someone. Sometimes, you know, it might be a brewer that does the quality and stuff, but to have a designated quality person, you know, is, is a good commitment. And um, I got the rest of the team involved in quality audits, being part of deciding how quality is run, making sure they always knew how we were doing, got them, you know, investigating things, making um, continuous improvement projects. Because I think what tends to happen sometimes is people hire a quality person and just expect that person to do everything. But um, really, you should always see a quality person more of as a, a facilitator and an enabler of quality. Everybody's got to be involved in making it happen. And I think when you do that, you get really great results. And, and I think that's something that we saw over the years at Gage Road. You know, our complaints dropped. We started getting better compliance, better micro compliance. We had fantastic audit results. Um, you know, the last audit I did there, we had zero non-conformances. That's something I've never done in my entire career up until um, last year. So it there, it really, you know, it's, it's testament to a business that, you know, really is committed to producing great quality beer. And I think the stadium, you know, winning the stadium contract, again, you know, that threw up the consistency thing. We we really had to think about how we were going to deliver consistent beer of a high quality to a stadium full of people, you know, week in, week out. Um, and, um, yeah, so I, I leaned a lot on what I learned at, at PepsiCo. We put in a very robust sensory program. I think we probably got one of the most robust sensory programs out there. Um, so, yeah, I think, um, you know, I'm, and I'm excited to see what they do. Um ongoing you know I think it's um I think they do set a benchmark for the for independent breweries that quality doesn't have to just be limited to your lions and CUBs but you're also I I believe a founder of the of Bira which is uh, now I've got to look at this the brewing interlaboratory reference analytes um, it doesn't it's not exactly uh, uh, ro- <laughs> roll off the tongue but it, it, it is the um, well, in fact we've done a podcast looking at Bira with John um, Selton so talking uh, and I think you were even on that uh, talking about what Bira was um, that it was a, a way that uh, craft brewery. Now I'm testing myself here. The craft breweries can assess their own internal testing through a benchmarking uh, system uh, through the exchange with other breweries. Is that? Yeah, 
that the, in essence, that's exactly okay. what it is. Yeah, it's a, it's actually a very simple program, really, but it just requires, you know, a good membership. And, and that's something actually, um, now that I've, I'm going out on my own, it's, it's something I want to work on is building up beer and membership throughout Australia and New Zealand, actually. We're going to open it up, um, to our friends over the waters. Um, and I think it's, it's super important because, um, it, it tells everybody, that they can rely on their results. Or more importantly, it might tell them they can't rely on their results and they need to put some actions in place before they have a recall or, you know, do something that could put people at risk, i.e., you know, produce something higher alcohol than what is on the packet, for example. Um, and it also really challenges people's equipment. So what happened originally, we were at um, BrewCon in 2017 and I was chatting with John um, John Selton from Brick Lane and Daniel McCulloch from Lalamond and Thomas Parker from Stone and Woods. And um, we were, we, you know, sort of all had a lab background and, and an understanding of what the gaps were. And we were sort of complaining that there isn't any programs that are sort of geared towards craft beer. Uh, a lot of the programs, you know, will do deliver a standard lager like a, you know, Stella or Cronenberg or, you know, a non-dry hopped ale. And so we really wanted to challenge our labs with the kinds of products we were making. You know, we wanted to test hazies, stouts, dry hopped products, um, you know, really check that what we were doing was actually, you know, relevant to the products we were making. And um, it's been great. There's been some real learning curves. We've helped some breweries who weren't complying. We've helped people to manage different pieces of equipment it might be, you know, how to improve their sample preparation, that sort of thing. And we've actually started to bring in the manufacturers of equipment. Um, they actually join in now as well, so they can test their own equipment and make sure that it meets the needs of their customers. So, um, yeah, it's been very, very exciting and hopefully we'll see it grow. I'd like to see every brewery in Australia being a member, well, every craft brewery. Um, I think it's really important and it's very affordable because... It's a not-for-profit, so it, it's it's not a fee-for-service business, is it? It, it? It's very much just covering the costs of running the operation. Absolutely. So there are programs run out of the UK and America, and they're up in the thousands to be a member. And um, we were still below two hundred dollars this year for for membership, and it literally does. It covers the beer and the shipping and the cost of us running the website and stuff. So yeah, it's very much not-for-profit. Well, let us know if there's anything that we can do. Again, I mean, that's very much an industry um, initiative that uh, we would love to help support. So if there's anything that we can do, um, let us know. Um, oh, thank you. You guys have always been really supportive and we do appreciate it. It's one of those things that can sound a little bit headmastery, or, but at the same time, it's the, the most important thing, not only for individual breweries, but for the industry that you know we, we have seen and the, the american craft industry talks about the quality perils of the late 90s i think when there was an explosion of breweries that quality actually significantly undermined consumer trust um in craft um and if you don't have consumer trust you don't have an industry in a lot of ways yeah absolutely yeah um now i understand in in march there was a number of you know in, in the current climate, there are a number of staff that are putting off. Unfortunately, you're, you're one of them, um, but it's given you the opportunity to set up your own quality business that I believe you'd been wanting to do for a little while before that anyway. Yes, absolutely. So, um, 
yeah it's been quite a while I've I've sort of been mulling the idea over of um going out on my own and um, mostly sort of inspired from my time on the board of the IBA um one of the great things about doing Bira being on the board and the quality project group for the IBA is I've had a lot of exposure now to members and other independent breweries across Australia and um, I just see a massive gap and um, I sort of came up with the idea that like as as previously mentioned like quality has to be ingrained in a business Um, the business has to be able to manage their their quality needs and stuff Mm. and so I never really just wanted to be a consultant that goes in and says look here you go I've made your quality system I'm leaving, you know, because that doesn't help anybody. And, um, yeah, and especially if there's an issue, then it doesn't make my reputation um, any more solid. Um, so I've always had the goal of creating a system and a set of templates that, you know, any brewery can use and they can manage their own quality and um, get behind it and, um, and manage their own requirements. So, you know, I think... This is the perfect time. You know, I've got the experience I need now. I've got the connections and um, I'm just looking forward to helping the industry um, sort of raise the the standard of quality and and food safety. I certainly don't want to see any more recalls. There's been way too many of those for my liking. So just I think there's a big gap that needs to be addressed. It's interesting because we have spoken to you about recalls in the past in the professional um, podcast, but... We work in an industry that really celebrates um, boundary pushing in a lot of ways. And you can sort of talk about just really how much this is new and being done for the first time and how much is just being done by businesses that probably don't have the experience and sophistication to do the things that they want, the, the, to push the boundaries that they want to push. Um, do you get a feeling that we are seeing an improvement um, or you know, are, are some of the recalls that we've seen recently still fairly um preventable um that's a very good question i I think there's more awareness and i think people are are definitely pausing before they jump into doing things um, and they're thinking a little bit more about what that impact might be on the finished product um but I, i i think um the more that people are getting involved in packaging products in particular um it's posing an increase in risks. So a lot of the recalls we're seeing are things like secondary fermentation, people adding stuff as well, or not fermenting products all the way out. And the, the, it's it's an interesting product because there's so many variables when it comes to the safety um, and compliance. And, and so I think the largest opportunity probably is a gap in knowledge and just understanding the processes they can take to still be super creative, still come up with amazing products, but it's that like take five that needs to happen <laughs> before that, you know, they commit to making it and packaging it and just making sure they've got all the ducks in a row. And I think that's very much about where I'm coming from. You know, I, I love this industry and I love independent beer because it's so exciting and it's different and it's boundary pushing. And I want people to be able to do that, but also not have a recall and not make people sick, or and also not tarnish the overall um, reputation of the industry, which I think is genuinely in danger of happening um, if we're going to keep having recalls like this. 
and, and on that, you know, again, once upon a time, recalls were done fairly quietly. Um, you know, the, the, the breweries that three or four years ago, you know, Brews News would publish it fairly you know, selectively in our newsletter. And these days you see Channel 7 News knowing the clickbait value of popular beer recalled because of excess alcohol, um, which, again, is purely being done just to get the traffic. But that also... The frequency of that, as you said, can undermine the credibility of the industry, but then it also can do a very significant damage to individual breweries because of the profile that they get. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's um, and it's something that's been well known in the food industry for a long time is is that reputational risk that comes with recall. Um, the other thing, you know, and this is another thing I learned through PepsiCo, is, you know, you can do a recall, and I've seen examples of it done by PepsiCo, you know, where they've been extremely thorough, you know, adverts in papers, radio, news, and, the, you know, they've got a huge amount of product back. But really, generally, only about one in five affected packages will come back. So it's a, it is definitely like shutting the door after the horse has bolted. So it's, it's always like the worst possible um, way to handle a food safety issue. So, you know, really, um, there's there's no winners when it comes to recall. It's just, it's not great. And and it doesn't even guarantee that you are going to get your affected packages. Someone can still get hurt. That's, I suppose, the main um, the main takeaway. Um, and yeah, it only takes one person to be injured from a product. And yeah, it has the ability to destroy, yeah, the, the business and the reputation of the industry. And, and one that we've covered, in, and again, we've done a podcast with you, is the excess alcohol, not the recall excess alcohol, where there's been, um, which has been the, the reason for the recall. But it, in those cases, the excess alcohol has tended to be because of re-fermentation in the package. But then we've also seen you know, some government health um, surveys that have found a wide variance in the published alcohol versus the actual alcohol. And you know, some of the variations are really troubling because, again, if you've got somebody um, who fronts the court and says, look, sure, I was over, but I'd only had two mid-strength beers and they were 1.5% out and that's what pushed me over, that would have massive um, repercussions for the industry in, 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 in that case. Yeah. It's about people being able to trust products. And, um, yeah, the alcohol one is, is quite scary. And it comes down to, as well, knowing that what you're, uh, comes back to beer, really, knowing that everything you're doing and how you're measuring is accurate because people do make quite significant decisions about their alcohol consumption based on that information, you know, driving looking after children there's there's all sorts of things where people really rely on that information to you know to de- decide what they're going to do so yeah it's incredibly high risk and um yeah it, it's a it's a real worry actually so I, I did want to turn this into a uh, you know brewery pro discussion about quality <laughs> i will actually link back to some of the other ones that we've had um where you've been on our panel but so so your 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 business um, is Athena, and you're going to have five elements under that. But you're starting with Athena quality um, is the business. Tell us, will you um, go in and help breweries 
develop their own quality programs or are you their externalized um, resource uh, for quality issues? How will you run it? Um, actually, there'll, there'll be a few different options, um, but the main area of focus is helping people create their own quality um, programs. Because, um, you know, as previously mentioned, to get the best outcome for everybody, they need to support it, understand what they've actually put in and um, and get behind it and manage it themselves. And so I'll be providing templates, how-to guides, infographics, everything you possibly need as a layperson to understand quality. I'm, I'm smiling because just before we got on, I was just flicking through social media and I saw you'd posted uh, that you were working on templates uh, or you, you, on some of those kits just before we uh, joined for this chat. That's right, yeah. There's, there's a bit to be done. So I've mapped out what I think a, a quality program would look like for a small to medium um, brewery. And um, and yeah, so and then I'll be there to coach, assist, work through that, so that hopefully after you know you've you've gone through the process, you've got something you can manage yourself, you can feel confident in. If something happens, you know what you're doing, you know who to speak to. If you the worst should happen, you have to do a recall. You know exactly what you're doing, and um, and also the benefit is you'll be as a business, you'll be able to show some due diligence. So you won't be in breach of any food acts or um, any other Fazan's code. So it's good, you know, good for protecting your business and your reputation as well. Actually, you, and I don't know whether you can comment on this one, but we recently had that very interesting one where Stone and Wood made an Irish cream stout um, and we had to withdraw it or had to recall it. Um, um, it wasn't a production problem, it was a labelling issue, but it really had industry head scratching because we just posted it sort of saying that look it's not a health issue it's just a labeling issue if you don't have a lack if you don't have a milk um, allergy it, it, it's not a problem but then we had brewers going well hold on what was in it that they had to withdraw and you know we couldn't get a straight answer from for sands about you know is it just the presence of lactose because then when we went and spoke to stonewood they said it was a threshold and we went back to for Sanders have said, well, what is the threshold that they're talking about? And, you know, it, it's it's incredibly complicated when something that brewers have just used largely unthinkingly, like lactose, um, has that lack of clarity around what's required. Oh, absolutely. Lactose actually is one of the most complicated ones, I think, for our industry. And it isn't very easy to get that information. So, you know, I think the standard in some terms is quite easy to read and understand and they have some really helpful guides on the Fazan's website but lactose is definitely not straightforward even for us quality people you know I've tied myself in um, circles sometimes looking at it I I think my general advice would be to people is raw material management you've always got to think about where that raw material came from and so if you've got a raw material and it's derived from some sort of allergen and an example might be like wine could be um, filtered using skim milk powder, for example. You know, and it, you have to sort of take it right back to to the you know where a product came from, and then you're really sort of in a very very sort of sketchy area where you're trying to decide whether you've got enough allergen in there to make someone sick or not. So you know, I'm always going to say err on the side of caution. 
Um, if it's in there, just pop it on the label. Exactly. You've got nothing to lose. I mean, most people will know if something's like got Irish cream written on it, that it's... Yeah, that and and in their case, apparently it was like it wasn't. You know, it was one of those um, just labeling issues where you've got a, a lot of people working on it, so it wasn't even an oversight in in, in some instances. But you know, that that's the thing. I guess it's the, the safest thing is if you are dealing with an allergen, pop pop it on. Yeah, yeah, and look, they won't be the first or the last, including big businesses. It's labeling and approving labels is really tricky. And, um, you know, I've seen some amazing check sheets that people use to make sure that everything's on there because it escapes past the most professional people's, um, you know, um, awareness at, at times. So, you know, it's, it's it, they, yeah, they definitely won't be the last. And, um, yeah, it, there's, um, there's some really good uh, resources out there. It's just, and I think one thing that, this is something that the food industry do really well. I think we can learn in the drinks industry is when we use a raw material, specifications are everything, uh, you know, learning about what that raw material is that you're going to put into something. Does it have preservatives in? What does it have in it? Is it, you know, has it got allergens? And and a lot of um, suppliers will actually have those. And if you ask for them, they'll be able to give them to you. Um, so it's just about making sure that you've got all the information you need. Just very conscious of time, I, I, I guess, I, I, is, is the business going to operate nationally or are you just going to work in Western Australia for now? I'm going to operate nationally. I, th- I think there's a lot I can do um, remotely, but I'm also planning to travel around a bit for one thing and another. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hopefully we'll um, see you over here this side for uh, BrewCon, if not before. Absolutely. Yep. I'll be um, over for BrewCon. I'll be in Melbourne in a couple of weeks. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping to go back and, and visit a lot of breweries. You know, it's a good excuse to see everybody. <laughs> As a tax deduction. <laughs> um, do, do you have a website up and running yet or how, how can people get in touch with you? So I'm on socials um, as Athena Quality and um, the website is coming. It, it's um, probably going to be ready in a, in a few weeks time. And then also um, I'm available at Claire, which is without an I, at athenabusinesssolutions.com.au. I'll put links to all of that in, in the show notes. Well, all the very, very best. We, we've always loved talking to you and you've just been uh, you know, such a straight talker and we've had good uh, you know, feedback whenever we've had you on the podcast. So thank you for being part of this conversation and uh, spending such a time talking about chips, which I actually found uh, in, <laughs> I- interesting. Um, but uh, all, all the very best with Athena Quality and uh, we're looking forward to, to hopefully getting on a few more quality-related podcasts. Lovely. Thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed it. And that was Claire Clouding. You can find links to all of her contact details in the show notes. And if you are looking at instituting quality programs, I cannot recommend Claire more highly. If you like this podcast, and we think it's a quality podcast, and you would like to make sure we can continue to make quality podcasts, you can help us out. If you're a business that wants to reach professional brewers and brewery owners, we can help you do that. They listen to us, and they can listen to you too. Shoot through an email to sam at brewsnews.com.au to find out how you can advertise. If you're a listener, you can kick in a few dollars, you can sponsor the show, you can find a link to that in the show notes. You can review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting service, or you can email us at producer at to share your thoughts. 
Don't forget, we'll be back this Friday with Brews News Week, diving deeply into the news of the week.